please be seated and turn with me to Haggai chapter 2, the first nine verses. You'll find this, of course, on your large print sheets, but also uh, in your pew Bible. One of the minor prophets, Haggai chapter 2, page 1277 and going on to 1278. So page 1,277, towards the very end of the Old Testament, book of Haggai, chapter 2, we'll be reading the first nine verses, the first nine verses of Haggai, chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord. In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, Is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I'm with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I'll fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Well, beloved people of God, this is now our second message Uh, on uh, the book of Haggai, this minor prophet, one of the 12 minor prophets, as you know. And I want just to mention, just for a moment, why we are looking at Haggai. We were in the middle of Ezra. Well, uh, it's interesting that uh, after the people of God, at the end of chapter 4, give up on on, uh, rebuilding the temple, Uh, There are several years there where no work is done, but then we read in Ezra chapter 5 that two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, were raised up by God in order to spur the people to work. And so that's why now we're looking at these three messages, three sections of the book of Haggai. And so again, let us just note the situation, the people were in captivity, having rebelled against the Lord, 70 years of captivity overall. But a remnant had returned to rebuild the temple. 
And after discouragements and disappointments, the temple still lay in ruins. And as I mentioned, for a period of time then, the people stopped work on that. But at the same time, the people were living in luxurious houses, in rich surroundings. And that, of course, is what Haggai addresses in chapter 1, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. In chapter 1, the Lord corrected his people's priorities with regard to material things. He corrected his people's priorities with regard to material things. There was the complaint. The complaint in chapter 1, first of all, was the disobedience by the people, but then secondly, the misplaced priorities, the misplaced priorities, the fact that they were not giving, uh, giving themselves over to rebuilding the temple. They were not giving themselves over to the work of the Lord. And so the complaint and then the punishment, and that had to do with unrealized dreams. We find uh, this striking uh, wording in verse 6, you have sown much and bring in little. So you, you go out there, you sow the seed, and little comes in. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You close yourselves, but no one is warm. How frustrating that could be. And then, of course, most strikingly, and he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. I don't know if the children went back home a couple weeks ago and tried it out, but you might want to try it out sometime. Just uh, take, a, pay, take a paper bag or a plastic bag and put a hole in the bottom of it and then put a whole bunch of coins and see how many, after you shake that a little while, see how many are left in the bag. Not very many, right? And so that, so these are unrealized dreams, unrealized expectations. But not only do we have the complaint and the punishment, we also have the resolution. How do you solve it? Repentance. That's what you do. You repent. And that's what we see uh, in terms of verse of rubble and all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the presence of the Lord. And so what did they do? Verse 14, they came then and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts. They are gone. In other words, they repented, but they didn't just say they repented. They actually showed that they repented. They showed, they demonstrated the, that this was genuine repentance. How easy it is, and this is true of all of us, how easy it is to say, oh, I repent. If you really repent, you're going to show it in your life. And so we looked then, in terms of proper priorities, we see that the proper priorities had to do, first of all, with we could say, with regard to the church, the visible kingdom of Jesus Christ, in a very specific way, the church, but then also spiritual things. So we ought to be committed to the church, obviously. We need to be committed to the church. 
particularly those of us who have taken vows of church membership. We need to have proper priorities with the church. But then spiritual things in general, we need to be committed to God. And of course, with regard to salvation itself, we need to have a proper understanding or proper commitment in terms of the priority of following after God and experiencing his salvation. And of course, in terms of salvation, we see then that what we have here is a picture of salvation, namely, that it is not merely a matter of being physically in Jerusalem. Rather, it has to do with the heart. And so people can be, for example, members of the visible church, but not really be committed to God, not really be committed to Christ. So it's not just a matter of being physically present in Jerusalem or having your name on a membership roll. No, it's a matter of having been converted. And of course, in that regard, then, salvation, salvation, reads Gus verse 14. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. To use the fancy term, it is monogenesis. Okay, or monergistic, I should say. Monergistic. It is monergistic. It is one, mono, like monoplane, one, one wing, one, and then in terms of energy, in terms of work, monergistic. That's the fancy way to uh, refer to this. Well, today then, as we come to, to chapter two, today then we see the people have begun to build and we see that they need encouragement. And as we look at this encouragement then that the prophet is going to give, we see three major points. Number one, challenge. Number two, commands. Number three, comfort. Challenge, commands, and comfort. And as we look at the challenge, the first thing we notice here is the date. Did you notice this? And again, this emphasizes the fact that our God's uh, revelation, that revelation, what God has given us, is rooted in history. Notice that what it says here in chapter 2, verse 1, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month. Uh, so this was uh, of Darius's second year of reign, the king's second year of reign. And you go back to chapter one, you see this was about seven weeks, about seven weeks after the first prophecy and about four weeks after the people started to build. So chapter one, verse one, the second year of King Darius in the sixth month on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet and then at the end of chapter 1, verse 15, on the 24th day, the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius. All right, so first day, sixth month, 24th day, the sixth month. Now we come to the seventh month and the 21st day of that month. So about seven weeks after the first prophecy, about four weeks after the people started to build. So we believe this date then would be around October 17th, 520 B.C. Now major festivals would have occurred. The Feast of Trumpets would have been on the first 
of that seventh month, the Day of Atonement on the tenth of that month, the Feast of Booths from the 15th to the 22nd of the month. Now, two things to note here with regard to these, to these festivals then. These festivals would have interfered in some regard with the construction because the people would have been engaged in these festivals. But at the same time, these festivals would have reminded the people of the joy and of the glory of the past. And it's in that context then, as we continue to look at this challenge, we come then to the source of the challenge, which is the Lord himself. And here we see that the references pile up. Notice verse 1, the word of the Lord. And we uh, find this then in... in um, uh, verse 4, says the Lord. Verse 4 again, says the Lord. Verse 4, says the Lord of hosts or Lord of armies. They're a reference to the angelic hosts, the armies of heaven, of angels. Verse 6, thus says the Lord of hosts. Verse 7, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 8, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 9, twice, says the Lord of hosts. Are you getting the picture here? It's emphasized over and over and over again that it is the Lord himself that is bringing this message. At the same time, he uses human means. For Haggai was used by God to bring that message. By God, he's used by God to speak. That's why we read in verse 1, the word of the Lord came by means of, or by the hand of, Haggai the prophet saying. But ultimately, the source of the challenge is the Lord. And who is subject to this challenge then? Who are the subjects? Well, first of all, the leaders. Look at Zerubbabel then. Verse 4, Zerubbabel. <clears throat> as well, and, and also verse 2, and Joshua. So these leaders then, obviously, like leaders, are responsible to lead. Notice again that both state and church were involved. Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, governor, and then also Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So state and church together were involved in this, uh, in, in this challenge to them. Notice again, though, that this is a typical or a symbolic picture of Christ. Yes, uh, Joshua, Joshua means Yah is salvation. Yah, Yahweh is salvation. And what does the angel say? In Matthew chapter 1, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And so it's pointing to Jesus, ultimately, is it not? And of course, we know that Christ is not merely the priest, but he is also the prophet and he is also the king. And so we find these three offices then, a prophet, priest, and king, bound up in the Lord Jesus. 
And then we also have not just the leaders, but the people. Notice verse 2, the remnant. They are directly addressed as the remnant or the residue of the people. So what is the, what is the substance then of this challenge to them? What is the substance of it? Well, basically, uh, look at uh, verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? How do you see it now in comparison with it is amazing. So first of all, first of all, we have then the call to remember the old. God is saying, don't you remember this? Don't you remember the skilled craftsmen who were hired uh, from other countries under Solomon? Don't you remember the imported lumber? Don't you remember the magnificent artwork? Don't you remember the fantastic amount of gold? And now compare it with this today in, uh, in terms of the, the present, God is saying. Couldn't pay any skilled workmen. The wood was not the cedars of Lebanon, just from any local mountain. They couldn't afford the gold. No great artwork. No wonder, verse 3 says, is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? That's kind of interesting, isn't it? That God, first of all, is challenging them. So in, in the first place, it's, it's not so much an encouragement. It's a direct challenge. Okay, what, exactly, what is this challenge? Directly comes from the Lord to the people to understand what this is all about. Secondly, we have the commands. The commands, and the first command is be strong. Three times we have this stated, be strong. This term, this command, is uh, repeated many times. And uh, we find this, uh, uh, for example, in uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 31 Verses 6 and 7, Deuteronomy 31, 6 and 7. Through Moses, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. And Moses called Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, be strong good courage. For you must go with this people to the land, the promised land, in other words, which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. We find in Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Joshua, be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to the law which Moses, my servant, right or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. We find that in other places in Joshua as well. So first of all, we have this command, be strong. Now, this theme, among other things, shows the continuity or the solidarity with the covenant. In other words, by hearkening back several hundred years as the people were coming into the land, now the same command is being used by God, is being given to them, be strong, be strong, saying this is nothing new, and you're continuing on 
in terms of being strong. And of course, this is for encouragement as well. That's the first command, be strong. Second command is to work. Work. Continue the work of building bravely. Now, my friends, God's workers are to be doers. God's people are to be doers and workers. You remember in uh, Ruth, uh, you remember in Ruth uh, chapter 2, remember when Ruth had uh, come back into the land? Joshua Judges, Ruth, Ruth chapter 2. And we read uh, that uh, Ruth's mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today? And where did you work? Work is a good thing. And so this is, we are to work with our hands. This is uh, what we find in terms of the, uh, the um, woman that is praised, the wife that is praised. She seeks wool and flax, Proverbs thirty-one thirteen. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. So in general terms, we are called upon to work. But here, specifically, they are called upon to continue work on the building. And then thirdly, in terms of the commands, God says, fear not. Fear not. For indeed, God is with you. Don't be afraid. And following then on that theme of God being for you, we see not only is God for them, but God is with them. And that leads us to the third major point, which is comfort. So we've had the challenge to them. Is this not as nothing? Don't you remember? We have the commands. Don't let that discourage you. Be encouraged. But also now, thirdly, the comfort. And the comfort comes from the presence of God. Notice his promise here in verse 4. Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord. And work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. Now this is actually repeating. So we've already had this message before. I am with you, says the Lord. And now we have it repeated for the sake of comfort. And notice who is saying this? Why, it is the great I am. It is Yahweh. It is Jehovah of hosts. It is the true and living God who says that. And so his promise is, I am with you. And notice verse 5. This is all according to the word. God's word is sure. It is settled in the heavens. And what is also, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. So God is showing himself to be the God of the covenant. God's word is sure and his covenant is sure as well. He covenanted with them as he brought them out of Egypt. Exodus chapter 19. So the presence of God, we see, first of all, is in terms of his promise given to us by means of his covenanted word that he will be with them. 
But we see the presence of God also in verse 5. You see the last part of verse 5? So my spirit remains among you. And so this passage, my friends, points to the eternality, the eternal nature, and the personality of the Holy Spirit. And it also points, therefore, to the deity, the full deity of to have the Holy Spirit abiding with you is to have God abiding with you. Now, we see in the Old Testament that there are references uh, to the Spirit. Uh, turn with me to Numbers uh, chapter 11. Numbers uh, chapter 11 and verse 17. Numbers 11 verse 17. Then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take of the Spirit. You see a capital S there? I will take of the Spirit that is upon you, Moses, and will put the same upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you that you may not bear it yourself alone. Verse 25, then the Lord came down on the cloud and spoke to him and took of the spirit that was upon him and placed the same upon the 70 elders. And it happened when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did so again, but they, on that occasion, they prophesied. Look at Numbers 27 and verse 18. Numbers 27, verse 18 And the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. We find something similar in 1 Samuel chapter 10 with regard to Saul. When Saul is being set apart as the first king of Israel, 1 Samuel 10 verse 6, the prophet says, And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you. You will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And we see the fulfillment of that in verse 10. When they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. Then the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. Again, we we don't usually think of the Holy Spirit uh, in terms of the Old Testament, but we clearly see this, do we not? But it is even more clear, of course, in the New Testament. It is even more clear in the New Testament. You remember in uh, Acts uh, chapter 5, remember in Acts uh, chapter 5, when uh, two people lied about how much Ananias and Sapphira lied about how much they had sold the property for? Remember what Peter said? Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. And same thing, verse 9, with regard to Sapphira, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Lo, look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. As my father, who was a preacher, used to say, you don't lie to an it. You don't lie to a force. You lie to a person. And so the Holy Spirit is also in chapter 3, the baptism of Jesus. And of course, there was a, there's Jesus, there's the voice, there, we hear the voice from heaven, that's the Father, and it's the Spirit who comes upon Jesus. 
That's the way the spirit's work is symbolized. It descends upon a person as he is poured out, if you will, upon people. And so it is the Holy Spirit then, along with the Father and the Son, clearly indicated. And of course, we have other passages. The Great Commission, go into all the world baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So the first thing we see here with regard to comfort is the presence of God, his promise and his spirit. God here reassures his people of his presence. And I just want to pause here just for a moment and connection among these things. I'm not going to go into this in any depth, but I'll simply point out that in this context of God's promise, we have the Spirit. Well, we see the same thing in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, where the Holy Spirit is the seal, is the down payment, is the guarantee of the promise of God. So spirit and promise we find in Ephesians 1, we find here in Haggai 2. We also have the spirit and God's word. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And even here in Haggai 2, we see the connection between the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And of course, in terms of Spirit and Covenant as well. Spirit and Covenant in his 36, in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 and following. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. This is all in accordance with God's promise where he says, I will be your God and you shall be my people. Jeremiah 31 verse 33, but this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So spirit, and promise, spirit, and word, spirit. and Well, the comfort then comes, first of all, because of the presence of God. But now, secondly, we see the comfort also comes because of the sovereignty of God. It comes because of the sovereignty of God. Notice God's control here in Haggai chapter 2. It is God who is going to shake things up. God is the one who's going to shake things up. He's going to shake up the world. What does he say in verse 6? Thus says the Lord of hosts once more, it is a little while. You know, if you look at Hebrews 12, verse 27, that passage definitely points to this being one very definite thing that God is going to shake the world. And you know, God had shaken the earth at the giving of the law. Remember that? Exodus chapter 19, when when you had the, the mountain that no one could approach, no one could 
could uh, get close to. God shook the mountain. Well, now, my friends, he's going to shake the heavens as well as the earth. How is he going to do that? What is the nature of this shaking that God is going to do? Well, we can see, first of all, that, this, that there is a literalness to this, literally. Remember the three wise men, or the wise men, I should say. We don't know how many there were. Remember the magi? What were they doing? They were looking whose star was in the east. God was disturbing the heavens, as it were, and putting his star in the east that they followed to him. Remember also that God sent the Holy Spirit from heaven and said so that people could hear him, could hear that thunder from heaven, this is my beloved son, hear him. Jesus shook things up by walking on water and performing other miracles. And during Christ's passion, during his his being on the cross, there was an earthquake, and not only that, but we read in, in Matthew that the graves opened and people who were saints who had died came out of the graves. What an amazing thing that is. And this great darkness for three hours over the land as Jesus was on the cross. So my friends, literally, there was a shaking of heaven and earth. But figuratively, there is also a shaking, is it not? The Bible often speaks this way. It uses the, these outward forms, if you will, to talk about something else that is going on. The nations are shaken in a spiritual sense. If you look at Hebrews chapter 12, in terms of the shaking that goes on there, the context demands this shaking refers to the state of the church. So what is that shaking that is going on in a figurative sense? Well, we know, my friends, that as Jesus has come, and as he has died, and as he has risen from the dead, the whole Old Testament way of worship, the ceremonial law with its regulations, was being abolished, abrogated, done away with. There will be a direct way into the Holy of Holies as symbolized. You remember when Jesus said it is finished and he gave up the ghost, what happened is that from the top to the bottom, the veil, the curtain, was ripped from the top to the bottom so that now there is a direct way into the Holy of Holies. The outward manifestations and and that went on, the earthquake, the darkness, and so forth, all of these pointed to this great shaking up that God was doing. And the glorious, new, immovable, heavenly kingdom was being established. And so there is this outward shaking, but it is also pointing to something spiritual at the same time. Now, what about the nations then? Notice what he says. I will shake all nations, verse 7. 
Well, you know, there were rumblings among the nations which paved the way for Jesus to come. The Persians had been defeated by the Greeks. The Greeks were then defeated. Syria and Egypt expended themselves by trying to conquer the world. And then Rome came to dominate, leading to a common language and the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And so there were shakings, there were rumblings that were going on for several hundred years. But more so, my friends, Christ's coming has shaken the nations. This is what the rulers of this world fear. They don't so much fear other nations. Ultimately, they fear the one who is the God of heaven. They fear him who is the Christ, the son of the living God. His coming into this world has shaken the nations. His gospel then has gone forth to the ends of the earth. It is causing all kinds of rumblings. Some nations respond positively to him. Some nations reject him. But it is God who is shaking all nations. Notice the ownership then uh, in this regard. Notice the, uh, the ownership, uh, not only the control of God in terms of the sovereignty of God, but notice the ownership. Verse 8, all things belong to God. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. All the silver, all the gold in the earth, all the gold and silver in the banks, in the vaults, in commerce, belongs to God. We give thee but thine own, as the poet put it. And therefore, because of God's ownership as an expression of his sovereignty, therefore the people do not have to worry about such things. Don't worry about it. I've got this. The silver is mine. And the gold is mine. But we see not only the presence of God and the sovereignty of God in terms of the comfort, but we see also the glory of God. And this glory is expressed in the one who is the desire of all nations. It's plural, we believe. Jesus, who is desired, who alone can satisfy. He alone can satisfy. This desire of all nations came and filled the house, the temple, with glory. It is God. Indeed, the Lord of the temple came to his own house. This is what we saw in our reading from Luke today. Luke uh, chapter 2, verses 21 and following. Even in terms of his being presented Eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child. He was being presented. And what do we have? We have Simeon and then we have Anna, a prophetess, both of whom gave glory to God for this son of God, born of the virgin, come in human flesh. Even at eight days old, they could perceive his glory. And so they came, they, they were able to give, to testify of that. Later, remember later in Jesus' life, 
in uh, Luke, uh, excuse me, in John uh, chapter 10, in John chapter, excuse me, a big part, John chapter 2, John chapter 2, verse 13, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign dost thou show to us, since thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Verse 21, he was speaking of the temple of his body. You see, the Lord of the temple came to his own house, and by his own authority, he cleaned it out in terms of these money changers of what the temple was supposed to be about. But more than that, on the basis of Jesus and his work, the new temple is even more glorious. The new temple is even more glorious. What was the old temple made of? Rocks, stones. Are they alive? No, they're dead. But we know from Ephesians 2 and from 1 Peter 2 that the temple that Jesus is building is made of living stones. It's made of us who belong to him. What a glorious thing that is. The old temple had to do with Israel, but now the new temple has to do with the nations as the earth has been shaken, and as the gospel goes forth to the nations, there is more glory. The nations are being brought into the kingdom. The, the old temple had the types, the symbols, with the sacrifices, with the incense, with the candlesticks, with the musical instruments. But now we have the reality that all those things were being pointed to. There is universal priesthood. No longer is there a special priesthood. We are all kings and priests before God. 1 Peter 2, Revelation 1, verse 6. The church has now grown up, Galatians 4, grown up to full manhood so that we're no longer in the childish period of the church. And of course, it, the old temple was temporary, but the new is permanent. That's why we read in Hebrews chapter 12, in Hebrews 12, starting in verse 26, whose voice shook, then shook the earth, shaking. But now he has promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace 
by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. The old was temporary. The new, my friends, is permanent. And so we see then, uh, in terms of the presence of God and the sovereignty of God, which shakes things up, and the glory of God expressed in the one who is the desire of all nations, who came and filled the house with glory, that's all part of the comfort, but now we also see finally in this regard peace with God. Peace with God. Shalom. Just like Jerusalem. It's kind of a pun that is here. The prophet talks about in this place. Well, what is the place? It is Jerusalem. Shalom, the place of peace. What is peace? Peace involves all the blessings of the age of Christ. All the blessings. When reconciliation with God and his righteous rule ensure a just and lasting peace and tranquility. You remember number six? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's anticipated. And now it is being fulfilled. Now it is being fulfilled. Jesus himself. Remember Hebrew, um, um, Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 and uh, verse 6. Speaking of Jesus, where the prophet writes, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And so when we talk about peace then, we must immediately point to Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace. But it is only then when nations that are being shaken, it is only when nations are reconciled to God that they can be reconciled with each other. It is only then that the nations will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And it's because God is shaking the nations with the coming of the Prince of Peace, the one who is the desire of the nations. This peace then, this granting of peace is found only in Christ. Jesus is our peace. This peace then was accomplished when Jesus shed his blood, reconciling us with God. I want to take a brief overview then of this text in which God assures the glory of the temple. First of all, in terms of doing an overview, just very briefly, remember, be aware of the fact that the people were again rebuked for their materialism. They were rebuked in chapter 1 for their materialism with regard to thinking that They could ignore God's worship, and yet what would happen, they would have those unrealized expectations, and it would be like having bags with holes. 
But my friends, we also need to realize, and this is why God is challenging them in verse 3 in comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? God realized the temptation. God realized the temptation that the people back then might think this is not really all that great. But my friends, the prophet is telling us that we must seek the true glory of God. Not externals. It is not the externals that are what counts. It is not the externals. Matter of fact, as you look around our church building, now, uh, you know, I, we, we want to do some renovations. We'd like the, uh, the, we'd like the leaks fixed. A few more things done. But let me suggest to you that what we have here, by the grace of God, is glorious because the glory is not in the bricks and the mortar. The glory is not in the externals. We rather hold fast to that which cannot be moved, that which cannot be shaken, namely the heavenly kingdom. And God doesn't take so much delight in your silver and gold. After all, he owns all of it anyway. God First, God first and foremost, God first and foremost doesn't want your silver and gold, fundamentally. God first and foremost wants you. That's what he wants. And if you just think, if you just focus on the externals, then you'll miss the true glory. Secondly, as an overview, there is a rich temple theme in Scripture. Uh, Even in the Old Testament, we see that the Lord points beyond the mere externals to that which is real, that which is spiritual. In the New Testament, Christ is revealed as the true temple, and every Believer is a temple of God, the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, by way of overview, there is an eschatological continuum. That's a fancy way of saying. There's a fancy way of saying that it's all one ball of wax. Okay? That's a fancy way of saying that. That when we look at what, and when we, you know, we, we think about the end of time, the coming of Christ, yes? And that will be a momentous event. But what we need to remember is that the decisive shaking of heaven and earth, which anticipates the final shaking, the decisive shaking, has already taken place. And so there is a, it's it's one ball of, it's a continuum, you say. So it's not as if the second coming is is just by itself, Rather, it's a manifestation of God's kingdom having broken into this world, having shaken things up fundamentally because it is the desire of nations who has come and who presents his message and some nations accepting that 
some people accepting that and others, of course, rejecting it. And so, my friends, the Lord reassures his people concerning the glory of the temple. But someday, the final shaking of the universe will occur. It is coming. This is what Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, 12 and 13. Looking for, well, starting in verse 7, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to looking for in hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? <laughs> Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, Look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. My friends, only if you are found in him who is the desire of all nations, only then will you have peace on that great day when Jesus comes back. Is he going to be your judge or is he going to be your savior? He's the true glory. And Haggai reassures God's people regarding the temple's glory. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And Father, we thank Thee for this opportunity for worship, opportunity, O God, to think on these things. And we pray, Lord, that each of us here indeed, uh, will be standing in Christ on that great day of judgment. Be pleased, O Lord, to work powerfully in our hearts and lives for the glory and honor of Christ, the true temple, in whose name we pray. Amen.